these are gifts from my ministry that um, I pretty much take everywhere with me. Um, the challenge here is that oftentimes we as Native people gather together, and we usually do that outside and light a fire. That's not happening in this chapel, let me tell you. I know all too well the history, and this is not my um, my seminary, and yet I understand the importance of taking care of every place that we are. So what's on the altar now is sweet grass and sage and some tobacco and the abalone shell. And the feather is um, what we use in our talking circles. So we have a presence of Native people here with us, even while we're not surrounded on all sides by our indigenous brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Gracious and loving creator, you made us in your image, in your diversity. You have given us a way to walk your sacred path, to follow you, to carry your love to the people we encounter. Help us this day and always be those who carry your love to this world. Amen. I based my conversation with you on um, the passage from Luke 24, 13 through 35. And this is often referred to as the walk to Emmaus. But this is the ending of Luke and really the beginning of the Acts of the Apostle. P apostles. And I'm not going to read you the whole passage, but I want you to remember that the story wasn't told by Jesus. The story was told by the disciples on themselves. But it begins about the 30th verse by saying, you remember they encounter him and wonder why he's the only person in the universe who doesn't know what's going on in the world. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Remember, they're not getting, remembering or seeing who he is. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. We hear this story from our gospel. Two disciples telling a story about their own blindness. Now, I was once a seminarian, and I thought I knew everything. And I thought I was going to learn everything I ever needed to know about being a priest. And it dawned on me fairly shortly thereafter, once I was graduated and ordained, that I didn't know anything. And that I really had to make my walk with God a daily, hourly gift. We approach this season of Lent as Episcopalians, oftentimes loving our practices of denial, giving up, turning our churches to dull colors. We really enjoy the the mood shift, the theatrics of Lent in many senses. And yet, I want to invite us to think about what it means to feast in Lent, what it means to find God's joy, like those two disciples did, while we're on the road, while we're feeling clueless and lost, while we're feeling a deep, dark sadness, and in the midst of this world, my sisters and brothers, is gripped in a horror of war that we couldn't have expected, imagined. We are all on the road together, and none of us knows where we're going. And yet we find Jesus with us in the breaking of the bread. I want to share with you a story about my my people, the Cherokee. Um, The Cherokees came out of North Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee. That is our homeland. We were removed by the federal government with several other tribes, what they called the five civilized tribes. Um, We had won a court case in the Supreme Court, Worcester versus the state of Georgia, and the president at the time said he didn't care. We were being removed. When my people were removed, my ancestor, Sally, about 11 or 12 years old, carried with her her New Testament and Psalms that were translated into Cherokee, American Bible Society, or its precursor, and a little hymnal with many, many hymns translated into Cherokee. So by the 1830s, my, my people had been, many of my people had been Christians for several generations. So when people ask me, how can you be Christian 
and native for what the government or the church or those kinds of things have done to us. I have to say I do what my people do. And if you are anywhere in the south along that, that trail, that trail of tears, we call it, people will recount stories about hearing familiar hymns in a strange language. So even in the midst of the worst of the worst, I mean, removal was done by the army. Folks were rounded up like cattle or dogs, often carried on boats or in carts, but mostly walked, were put in jail cells at night in various different forts, and yet still they sang hymns and gave thanks to the Creator for life. Even in the midst of those dark roads, like the disciples saying, don't you know what's going on? One of the traditional stories, two traditional stories about the Cherokees in the Great Smoky Mountains, as we call them, is one of them is our creation story, which talks about how the sky arch was getting full. There were so many animals and birds, and it was decided, because they could all talk to one another, that, and they met together and had counsel, that they needed to do something to provide more space for everyone. And finally, they worked on the way to come up with a way to provide more space and looked out the expanse of water and sent um, a beetle down with a tether. And that beetle pulled up the earth out from underneath the water. But it was really muddy and really wet. And so they decided to find someone that could help with drying up the face of the earth. And so finally, the most unlikely per, um, animal went was the turkey buzzard. That's probably not your favorite bird, um, but it was the turkey buzzard. And the turkey buzzard, with these big wings, sort of slow and broad, swept down and kept over the water until it dried up and pulled away from the earth. But as he tired, his wings dipped and hit the mud, and that's where um, what we call now the Great Smoky Mountains came from. They were formed as the turkey buzzard tired and drew the water. Any of you who spent any time in that part of the world know it's very lush, and oftentimes there's mist on the mountains, and there are many, many wonderful mountain streams and rivers um, and one of the stories about how we fished as Cherokee people, um, and I have a dear friend, a bishop of, former bishop of North Dakota, who th thought I was lying, but um, we would take walnut bark, which is an anesthetizing agent, ford up parts of a stream, and then put the walnut bark in it, and 
go in and pick out the fish once they were still. So I say that I come from a long line of lazy fisher folk. <laughs> but it also means that the intent was not just one fish at a time, but to make sure the entire community could eat. Remember, they knew the Lord in the breaking of the bread, in the community table, in the place between people, that intimate moment. It wasn't at Eucharist, it was at table with friends or strangers or the unknown. I grew up um, the daughter of a Navy chaplain and Presbyterian minister. Um, my dad is Scots Presbyterian. My mother is Cherokee. Her name is, was Betty Walking Stick or a Woody Odinisti. And so when we grew up, um, we called my father the Great White Father. And he called us his little savages. The reality of living in this world, and you have to realize that I was born the year that Emmett Till was lynched, and we are still waiting for that legislation to be finalized. Um, Anti-lynching legislation, you would think that would be already on the books um, as a federal government. But we lived in a world where people didn't understand their understanding of native indigenous people was what they had seen in the movies. Um, when my grandparents would come to visit, my mother's family, folks from my school wanted to come see our teepees and our this and the that and the other thing. So we live in a world that people, at least I grew up in a world where people really didn't understand and want to understand the power of our own diversity. And yet we now, in a global village, in a life that cannot avoid seeing and hearing and feeling the pain across our world, and particularly in the Ukraine, are invited to think about this Lenten season, this particular one in 2022, as an opportunity to find feast with others find a way to get to the table with others. All the other things we do during Lent are not necessarily going to bring the hope and the faith of God unless we're willing to walk on the road with strangers, unless we're willing to enter into our own removal away from the comfort zones, folks, away from those places that make us sure of how wonderful we are to those places that take us to our very brokenness. And yet, it is at that table with strangers, that place of confusion and misunderstanding, that place where the worlds, our worlds collide and we're uncomfortable and we're often freaked out by our level of discomfort. 
And yet that's a place where God invites us. The holiness is in that relationship. Joy Harjo, who's a famous native poet and writer, often says the difference between native people, indigenous people, and non-indigenous people is that we don't wake up every morning as others do thinking, what am I going to do today? How am I going to grow or get stronger? We think about who I need to take care of today. And the invitation to feast during Lent is for you to think of how you can seek out those tables that might be uncomfortable, that one little invitation from the disciples to the unknown Jesus, that place of journeying in the most uncomfortable places and strange and weird places might just be the place that we all encounter Jesus might be when our hearts burn and our minds are changed and our lives are redirected. Those disciples go rushing back to Jerusalem. They were running away, folks. They were running. They were seeking comfort and hiding. And they went back to that awful place in Jerusalem. That recent horror, that bombed out shell of a city. That's where they headed back to. And we are invited to find those hard places in the, un, the people we can't understand and seek out God in those places. I want to end by seeing you um, a hymn I learned a long time ago. Um, and I am honored and often people don't understand, but I came from a very complicated background. Um, my dad um, graduated undergraduates from Bob Jones College. Now, some of you don't know about Bob Jones College, but um, my father was actually, as a Presbyterian, thrown out of Bob Jones College Alumni Association in the 70s because he wasn't conservative enough. Um, and he wasn't liberal in any stretch of the imagination. But one of the people he was roommates with, or at least classmates with, um, was a man named Billy Graham. And um, my dad always thought Billy was too full of himself, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but whenever the Billy Graham crusade would come, um, near where we lived, we'd go out and um, my dad knew all those characters, so we'd get to um, be there and hear the music and be part of choirs and things like that. And, um, sometimes my dad would sit with them. But I remember hearing this as a child, as 10 or 11 years old, and it always struck me that we are always on the road and we are always easily discouraged and we were always seeking comfort and yet where God is calling us is exactly to the road we're on, the awkwardness, the incompleteness, the inability, and in those places to find joy and knowing that God is right there with us in Jesus Christ. And it goes like this. And if you know it, you can sing along. 
Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free, for his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Amen.